You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, May 2nd, 2022. Later in the program, Indiana's primary election begins tomorrow, Tuesday, May 3rd. More information on where, when, and how to vote, and some information on local races is in today's headlines. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their recent strike against Indiana University. But first, your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on April 27th, Monroe County Sheriff Brad Swain updated the commissioners on how the sheriff's office has been implementing the software Lexipol to electronically keep track of their policy documents and procedural manuals. One of the issues that we had when I took office was we had separate policies and procedures updated or implemented by uh, different sheriffs and they were in different formats. Uh, some were just printed materials, scanned. Uh, others were created on Word documents. So it was just a mishmash of uh, policies and procedures. You actually, uh, we had trouble finding them. If an employee needed to make a reference, that was difficult. With Lexapol, we now have a searchable database by word search for any policy or procedure. Uh, and these are even accessible by telephone, by an app on the phone, or by uh, in-car computers. And just doing a search term, a deputy or a jail officer can find a policy or procedure uh, at a moment's notice. Uh, in addition uh, to this program and implementing it, we found that we had a lot of policies that were not uh, really, uh, that were lacking and needed updating. Swain said that they also have been using the program to send out training bulletins that the officers are expected to keep up to date on. So we created or had Lexapol create a uh, daily training bulletin. They didn't have one yet. And when I contacted them, they thought that was a good idea. They sent it out to every single Lexapol customer they had. They had. Uh, it also provides good tracking, especially now that we have well over 100 jail and patrol officers. Uh, it provides tracking that they are reviewing and they are taking the daily training bulletins. And we don't do this every single day. We set out a few subject matter training bulletins and within their work rotation in a given month, they are supposed to uh, take the time, review and document. Uh, and there's tracking on that. 
Swain said that Lexapol has been a beneficial program for the Sheriff's Department. Commissioner Penny Kittens said she was very pleased the program has been so useful. She also asked how much the program will cost moving forward since it was initially funded using grant money. Swain said that he was not sure about the exact figure, but said he can provide it in the future. The next commissioner's meeting will be held on May 2nd. On April 25th, at the Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting, Capital Projects Manager Daniel Hudson shared bids for the Monroe Water Treatment Plant Filter Rehabilitation Project. With the media re replacement, it also includes uh, structural repairs of the ceiling, uh, lighting repair, uh, replacement, and some electrical improvements. And a big part of it is ventilation of the filters. We have two bids uh, that came in. Uh, the first one is Mitchell and Stark. According to Hudson, the bid from Building Associates is for $2,304,700. Board member Kurt White asked how much the department originally expected the bids to cost. Hudson said that their estimates were much smaller than the bids they received. Departmental estimate and the consulting engineering estimate we were the same. It's a... Uh, one million two hundred eighty-one thousand one hundred. Yeah, I was thinking. Wow! So uh, considerable difference. Kind of uh, re reflects the situation we're in, I guess, at the moment. Uh, that's what I suspect. I mean, all of the contractors are talking about delays and uncertainty in projects uh, because of equipment delays in manufacturing. So. I'm, I'm hoping that's the issue. I don't know. Hudson said that the department staff will bring their recommendation to the next board meeting in two weeks. The next Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting will be held on May 9th. Indiana's 2022 primary election begins tomorrow, Tuesday, May 3rd. Early voting for the primary ends at 6 p.m. tonight on May 2nd. Polling times are from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., but if you are in line by 6 p.m., you will be able to cast your vote. To vote on Election Day, you will need a valid form of identification issued by either the state of Indiana or the United States government. In order to find out where to vote, meaning your designated polling place, visit indianavoters.in.gov. That's indianavoters.in.gov. Indiana House District 62 will be a race to watch during this election cycle. Monroe County Commissioner Penny Githens and outgoing Sheriff Brad Swain have announced their candidacy for the Democratic primary. They will face either David Hall or Greg Knott, candidates for the Republican primary, in the general election come November. The Democratic and Republican challengers will not face off against an incumbent as former District 62 Representative Jeff Ellington announced last year that he will change his residency to Bloomfield in order to run for the House District 45 seat. According to the Indy Star, the recently passed redistricting maps show that the once reliably red House District 62 will now become more competitive. The new maps exclude Martin, Davies, and Greene counties while gaining Brown County, more of Monroe County, and parts of Jackson County. 
Another race of local interest, the Monroe County Sheriff's Race. Current Sheriff Brad Swain has served two terms in office, and by Indiana law, he is not permitted to run for another term. Five Democratic candidates have put their names in the hat for the primary, including Steve Hale, Ruben Marte, Angie Purdy, Joni Stalkup, and Troy Thomas. Nathaniel Williamson stands alone as the only Republican challenger. Whoever wins the primary will determine who will face off in the general election. Lastly, Monroe County residents can vote for who will be the party candidates for the 9th Congressional District. Three Democrats have announced their candidacy, while nine Republicans will face off after GOP incumbent Trey Hollingsworth said he would not seek re-election. To learn more about all the candidates in this year's primary, visit the League of Women Voters Voter Guide at 411.org slash ballot. Up next, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their recent strike against Indiana University. We turn now to that segment. Strike Mike. On Sunday, April 10th, a 97.8 affirmative vote by IU graduate workers set into motion the largest indefinite strike Bloomington has seen in decades. Every day that we can, WFHB's Strike Mike will bring you to the front lines of this movement, allowing you to understand the issues and the action through the voices of the participants themselves. It's day 15, the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition uh, strike for union recognition. This morning we are doing a, a soft picket line trying to get delivery trucks to the, you know, the IMU building to turn around um, and succeeded twice. This morning a UPS truck rolled up. Um, he said a few words to the driver and they were immediately put their hands up and said, right, I'm not crossing the picket line, I'm turning around. They backed up and um, it was a really cool moment for us. So big win, two big wins for the day. Hi, my name is Katie Beardall and I was on the picket line with the IU Grad Worker Coalition today and huge shout out to Soft Touch Moving who saw our picket line and refused to cross. We really appreciate all of the community support from the Bloomington, different companies. It has been really wonderful to see the solidarity from people driving by, people donating food and snacks. The energy on the picket line is really special and we appreciate the support and solidarity. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Ashley Ewald, writer, advocate, and podcaster about her life story, political aspirations, and how Generation Z alters how older generations see cultural changes, climate change, and the wider world. We turn to Zero Rose for part one of an ongoing interview series.
WFHB feels that it is only right to recognize the indigenous communities native to this region as past, present, and future caretakers of this land, and we choose to acknowledge and honor the Miamiaki, Lenape, Bodewadmik, and Sawanwa peoples of what is now called Indiana. The anglicized versions of their tribal names being Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee, on whose ancestral homelands Bloomington, Indiana was built. We encourage everyone to engage with contemporary Native communities, to learn the histories of this land, to consider who does and does not have access to its resources, and to examine one's place, abilities, and obligations within a process of reparative work that is necessary to promote a more equitable and just society. Our guest today is Ashley Ewald, a real dynamo of civic engagement, currently attending college at Oglethorpe University, Atlanta's only co-ed small private college. At 19 years old, Ashley has canvassed for Asian Americans Advancing Justice, a nonprofit organization working to increase voter registration and empower citizens to exercise their civic duty to vote. In 2020, she participated in a program of the ACLU National Advocacy Institute. She has been a speaker at many civically oriented events and is a published journalist and podcaster. At Wheeler High School, Ashley served as treasurer of the Economics Club and freshman class president in Brookhaven, Georgia. She also participated in political campaigns in late 2020, playing a role in Georgia Senate elections, working for the Warnock for U.S. Senate and John Ossoff for U.S. Senate efforts to encourage voter turnout. Her self-improvement writing has appeared in Thought Catalog and Teen Inc. magazine. Her TV appearances have covered important topics, and she has created a podcast to share the stories of impactful students and influencers who inspire listeners to elevate their skills and reach their full potential. We will be discussing her life story, political aspirations, and how Generation Z is altering how older generations see cultural changes, climate change, and the wider world. Thank you for joining us today, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. And I, it's an honor to be here on your show. And to further into detail, yes, I am 19 and I serve as my college's freshman class president, representing student concerns and treasurer of economics club and creating podcasts as well. Thank you so much. I just want to dive in and say is that I think it's very important that no matter how old you are to get out there and make a change and be a voice and to never be afraid to start young. So, uh, Ashley, tell us about your upbringing, your background, your life trajectory, and the experiences that got you into social issues, making media, and getting into politics. I understand you have some uh, political aspirations. When I was a little girl, being an orphan, in China, left at the doorsteps of a hospital, and then put into an orphanage. Orphanage. I was born during the one-child policy. And so being someone who was cleft-affected and a girl at the time, it's very hard for parents to be able to keep more than one kid without getting penalized by the government, and especially if a child is born with a birth defect. So therefore, I was... My early upbringing was almost as if I was destined to never find a family, to never try to make something out of myself. I was placed into two orphanages and then adopted at the age four. And then I was moved all the way to Georgia, where I would 
become a citizen automatically due to the Adoption Foreign Act of 2001. And my first adopted family, they didn't, I don't know if they were not ready for what a foster child or an orphan who knew no English and knew nothing but Mandarin at the time, knew how to parent. So I was placed for foster care. I would undergo uh, multiple foster homes where I would have to deal with food insecurity and moving on, moving around so much that I just didn't even know what true love was or what it's like to actually be in a family, let alone be a part of one. Until the age seven, I was adopted by my current parents now. And this is my second adopted parents who taught me what love and compassion is. And being seven at the time, I was behind in school. So in elementary school, I was not the best student. I misbehaved. I thought of myself as a class clown. But that taught me the importance of education. And as I grew older and I entered middle school, fifth grade is when I met a Holocaust survivor. And he changed my world. And yes, I went through bad things, but the things that he went through was so unimaginable that like when I learned about his him surviving 10 concentration camps, like his story and learning about the horrific events inspired me to get into politics. That was my first step in the door. In sixth grade, in my social studies class, I used to do speeches and debates with my classmates and I loved it. And Public speaking always came so naturally to me. So therefore, when my social studies teacher pulled me to the side, she was like, Ashley, public speaking, you know, like, have you ever thought about becoming a politician? And me at the time, being a 12-year-old, I had no idea what it was. So I was like, I don't even know what a politician is. And so therefore, she taught me what politicians do and the roles of government. So immediately that day, I came home. I looked up what a politician was. I tried to do as much research as possible. And it just, it was almost like a seed had been planted and it was ready to blossom. So, and then in seventh grade, I got more into involved. And then in eighth grade is when I got nominated by my Georgia studies teacher to do the PAGE program at the Georgia State Capitol. That's when I got to witness government firsthand and seeing how legislation works, seeing their state representatives, state senators' job and their role, and getting to witness local government firsthand. So in eighth grade is when I got to do all of that. And I, I got to like go to John Ossoff's rally and like meet him before he became Georgia senator. And when he was running for the congressional bid of district, at the time, I created an iMovie for him. And I remember he saw it and he liked it and stuff. And it's just, it was amazing. It was just like this big like bond I felt I had towards him. And... That's what really helped me realize the politics, like, I like I feel like I was, it, we were just meant for each other, but my experiences of what it's like to be part of an immigration system that's not always emphasized of the rules that are supposed to be upheld, you know, like, when I was 16 years old, when I was 15 and 16 years old at the time, and I was trying to get my permit, I didn't have my certificate of citizenship. And that's exactly when, like, my parents, you know, it's not their fault either. That's when they realize the importance to file for the certificate of citizenship part. Because I, I was an American. I am an American. And I automatically became a citizen if you were adopted by American parents, you had legal residence and stuff like that, due to the Adoption of Foreign Act of 2001. So then, 
me constantly living with that anxiety over someone thinking that I am not from here or I'm not an American based on, I don't know, the way I look or just in general, that kind of taught me the importance of the ability to protect people who are trying to legally come into the U.S. and who are trying to legally become residents and citizens and not make it harder for people who are working hard and trying to get to America to build a better lives for themselves. And so that being said, being an orphan and medically affected also taught me the importance of Medicare. So that's exactly the reason why politics for me is just, it's not even about government or like positions. It's just about the world and how the world functions and how we run on a society of our economical system and just in general and the government and the ability to serve your community is what gives me life. And it was my past of going through all of that stuff and also getting to truly connect one-on-one with legislations. I realized how important legislations make it onto people's lives and that everyone, whether it's involuntarily or voluntarily, are influenced by policymakers. And the policies are enacted onto thousands and millions of citizens and people each day. So that's exactly what got me involved. Up next, Bring It On's Liz Mitchell brings you the latest edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. We turn now to that Bring It On segment. Welcome to Dark Past, Bright Future. Lessons in African-American history that you won't read about in any textbook. Telling the stories of the struggle of those who came before us to build a better path to a brighter future for all of us. Welcome to another edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. I'm Liz Mitchell, your host. We all know that taking another person's property without their permission is called theft. We also know that you are caught being a theft. There are consequences. In the 1800s, one of the most notable thefts to commit was called Negro stealing. So much had been done to prevent this crime that the U.S. government got involved and Congress passed two Fugitive Slave Acts. One in 1793, and the other in 1850. Both provided for the seizure and return of runaway slaves who escaped from one state into another or into a federal territory. The 1793 Fugitive Slave Act clarified the processes by which slave owners could claim their property and was designed to balance the competing interest between free and slave states. The 1850 Fugitive Act allowed for offenders to face imprisonment and created a force of federal commissioners empowered to pursue fugitive slaves in any state and return them 
to their owners. In the mid-1800s, two very brave women, one white, the other black, were sent to Kentucky State Penitentiary for the crime of Negro stealing. On September the 28th, 1844, a white woman by the name of Delia Webster was arrested. She was a schoolteacher who at one time taught colored children while living in Madison, Indiana. Her case went to trial, where on December the 1st, 1844, she was convicted and sentenced to two years hard labor. Delia happened to be the first female sent to that prison, so a small one-room cabin was built in the middle of the courtyard to house her. Delia arrived at Kentucky State Penitentiary on January 19, 1845, by taking a train, unescorted, to the gates to be met by the warden and his wife. She was pardoned on February the 24th, 1845, by then-Kentucky Governor John Crittenden having barely served five weeks of her two-year sentence of hard labor. Just about 20 years later, the other woman, a free woman of color named Hannah Coleman Tolliver, a washerwoman who lived in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and she was convicted, arrested on April 1864. And by May, she was convicted and sentenced to seven years hard labor at Kentucky State Penitentiary. She was pardoned by then-Governor Bramlett on January 5th, 1865, after serving a little less than eight months of hard labor. Hannah was one of 19 free persons of color sentenced to prison for aiding fugitive slaves between 1844 and 1864. Kentucky originally rejected the 13th Amendment. Since this state was not one of the states to succeed from the Union, the Proclamation of Emancipation did not apply. Kentucky did not ratify the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery until March 18, 1976. Hmm. This concludes this edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Dark Past, Bright Future, exploring the many different shades of African-American history, because the true history of our people is more complex than black and white. In the words of the Negro National Hymn, Sing a song full of the hope that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won.
Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information is available online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Kate Young and Noel Perhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose and Cade Young. Strike Mike is produced by Mia Beach and Hugh Farrell. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason coming up next on WFHB.